Greetings, and welcome to Swamped, a nerdy science podcast all about swamps. Each week, we explore anything from wetland science to swamp folklore. I'm Jess, and this is episode one, Slow Burn. Today, I'd like to talk about an episode of CSI Miami called Slow Burn. Now, CSI Miami is one of my favorite crime shows, and if you're one of those people who's like, oh, that's a terrible crime show, it's super unrealistic, and there's no central plot, then you're right, but the videography is great, and people in Miami love it so much that they give tours, and they have websites talking about the characters as if they're real. This show lasted 10 years because people loved it so much. Anyway, I'd like to talk about this episode because it's filmed in the Everglades, and the Everglades are a huge wetland ecosystem containing marshes, forested uplands, ponds, and prairie. And the total ecosystem itself is 7,800 square miles, or for those of you living outside the U.S., that's 20,200 square kilometers. But it used to be double that size. So, in the beginning of the episode, the team walks in to a controlled burn or a prescribed burn of low intensity so that they can analyze the body. And this is pretty true to reality because the National Park Service does have controlled burns. And on their website, they have alerts of when and where these go on. And if there's wildfires, they'll also have maps of the places that you should avoid. So the aim of controlled burns is to remove excessive brush, shrubs, trees, and encourage new native vegetation. But the aim is not to burn the peat. You just want to burn the surface. And they cover this pretty well in the episode by saying that once the peat catches on fire, you can't tell what's on fire and what's not because it will smolder below ground and this can go on for days without someone even noticing. So peat burn bad, ground burn good. So, at the episode, when they show up, it's kind of funny because the mortician, uh, Alex, is wearing heels, and she's there with her co-worker, Tim, and it's kind of funny because they are in the real Everglades, which means that she did have to wear heels to an actual swamp, but obviously there's parts of the Everglades that are um, kind of above ground, and you've got, like, roads, and then you've got the parts that aren't so nice, and you would definitely sink in if you were to wear some heels. Not too long into the episode, Tim mentions that there are indigenous tribes living nearby, and this is correct. There are two tribes living in the Everglades that are officially recognized, and these are the Seminole and Mikasugi tribes, and apologies if I did not pronounce that correctly. So visitors are allowed into the visitor centers in the Everglades. There are five. There are also bookstores, campgrounds, roads, and recreational waters all open to the public. The Everglades are four to five feet deep on average, so you would probably want to have a boat if you were to go anywhere near those recreational waters, and it's nine feet at the deepest. Now, the reason why this landscape has so much water is because it was formed by a flood 5,000 years ago from Lake Okeechobee, which is the eighth largest natural freshwater lake in the United States, so it's pretty large. 
So not long into the scene where they're analyzing the body and the characters run into a puma. And the Everglades do have pumas, but there's less than 50 left, according to Tim on the show. But uh, if you ask the National Park Service, they say there's less than 100. Doesn't matter. Either way, there's not many left and they are an endangered species. There's less than 5% of their original range left. And they've suffered from habitat loss, fragmentation, degradation, and this is due to the usual suspects. Farms, cities, car accidents, inbreeding, environmental toxins, and the like. The puma diet consists of 90% wild hog, deer, raccoon, and armadillo, and the other 10% comes from rabbits, rats, birds, and sometimes they'll even go for alligator, which is pretty wild. So, hunting um, is allowed in the Everglades, as long as it's not of pumas. In fact, there's an initiative to hunt pythons, which I guess have gotten out of control in the Everglades. Oh, I thought this was weird, so I looked up why there's so many pythons here, and there are some uh, suspicions that a storm that uh, came through the area broke down some pet stores and some pythons that were meant for captive pets became released into the Everglades. Um, there's also some suspicions that people who keep pythons as pets don't realize how large they get and end up dumping them outside without realizing that they will really thrive and probably come back to haunt you. And I'd just like to take a moment here to grieve over the fact that we had a chance to make a movie called Snake Nato, but yet we chose to make one about sharks and tornadoes instead. Okay? Great opportunity missed there. Anyway, back to the episode. So the sky turns red, and this kind of reminds me of the California wildfires. Of course, the fires in California were wildfires, and the ones in Miami CSI were prescribed. What I'm talking about here is the fact that the California wildfires seemed so extreme that because the sky was so full of ember and ash and clouded by the fire, people couldn't see you know, which way they even needed to go to get out, and I'm sure it was the same way for animals. So that brings up a lot of questions. How do you keep these fires under control? How do you make sure that it's good for the environment and that it doesn't turn into something that's just completely damaging? So this led me to a study done in Northern California by Sharon Hood, who is a forester at Rocky Mountain Research Station, the Fire Sciences Lab in Missoula, Montana. And the study was on prescribed burning to protect large trees. So in this study, they looked at tree vigor, mortality, and susceptibility to bark beetle pests. And something that they mention is that trees will die when soil temperatures reach above 60 degrees Celsius for an extended period of time. So when you are doing a controlled burn, you don't want to damage the large and valuable trees. Or if you do want to remove trees, you don't want to remove all of them. So you need to mark which specifically you want to eliminate and which you want to protect. So they suggest that during controlled burns, the duff or the dead leaves near the leaf, the tree base will smolder, heating the soil and ultimately leading to death in the next few years for the damaged tree. And trees with fire scars are more likely to die in fires than other trees. Fires will ignite the pre-existing scar, burn to the center of the tree, and become very hard to put out. So in the study, 
They had their own prescribed burn, and during the burn, they measured the flame height and speed. So the flames reached heights of a half foot to one and a half feet and traveled 130 to 200 feet per hour. And then afterwards, they took tissue samples to test for life. They also used thermocouples and duff pins to measure the temperature and volume of smoldering. In the end, what they suggest is to rake trees so that the duff doesn't smolder at the base and end up injuring the cambium of the large ponderosa and jeffrey pines that are so valuable in areas like California. And this also helps reduce the amount of red turpentine bark beetle attacks. And why? It's not necessarily known, but it seems like something that this group is looking into. And so the reason why controlled burns are so important in the Everglades is because this duff that we've just been talking about builds up to an exceptional amount over the years as a result of fire suppression. So in the Everglades, there was a period of over 100 years that there was no burning. So next, I'd like to dive a little bit into the history of the Everglades Park, which was established in December 6th of 1947. There was a multiple purpose water conservation program that was founded in 1949, and this led to the development of the Central and South Florida Flood Control District. And the reason why water was truly the focus of the conservation program at the Everglades is because there was so much destruction initially where the wetland was drained for the purpose of agriculture that the new goal was to restore the ecosystem back to its original state in that sense. So one of the reasons why the Everglades are so unique is because they're rainfall fed. So although in the beginning the Everglades were sourced by freshwater lake Okeechobee, it is now replenished by rainfall. In fact, most of the rainfall is a result of convective storms and cyclonic systems from the Atlantic Ocean, Caribbean Sea, and the Gulf. The Everglades are also the largest subtropical wilderness in the entire United States and are a biodiversity hotspot. There's 16 different species of wading birds. There's also the infamous crocodiles, mangrove species, snail kites, which is a bird of prey, and tropical butterflies and endemic tree snails, meaning that the tree snails found here are species that you won't find anywhere else in the world. And then the other endangered species that exist in this region are the leatherback turtle and the West Indian manatee. There are also species here that you wouldn't have naturally found in this area before, such as cattails, which thrive on agricultural runoff and the effects of urbanization, as well as the pythons that I mentioned earlier. So this all ties back into fire because the distribution of major freshwater plant communities in the Everglades can be explained in terms of hydroperiod and severe fire disturbance. By hydroperiod, I mean how long water covers an area. There are so many different resources for fire succession in the Everglades. If you just look up fire succession or hydroperiod in the Everglades, there are tons of resources you can use to learn about what succession looks like in that ecosystem. Of course, right after a fire, you're not going to really see much. Things are just going to look charred and burnt. It's going to look like you just stomped out a campfire. 
but there are some ecosystems that you're going to start to see before you see others. So in the years following a major fire, one of the things that you might expect to see is a Rockland pine forest. A Rockland pine forest can be characterized by its mineral soil and it has a low hydro period of less than 60 days. And you would see this for up to 15 years after the fire. You might also see some wet prairie, which has a hydro period of 60 to 180 days. Something else you might find is sawgrass marsh, which is inundated for most of the year, so 200 to 300 days hydro period, and spike rush marsh, or water lily sloth. And so spike rush is a kind of sedge which looks like a clump of grass essentially. And then a water lily sloth is a swamp or a lake connected to a larger water body. And so these are also ecosystems that are going to be flooded for most of the year. And as years pass after the fire, the Rockland pine turns to tropical hardwood, wet prairie will turn into savanna, marsh becomes swamp forest, and then after around 100 years, there's not much change and the ecosystem kind of just reaches a steady state. So the takeaway from all of this is that succession takes longer in a wetter environment, meaning if you have a rockland pine forest, it doesn't take long for that to be overcome by hardwood. But if you have a swamp system, it's going to take longer for that system to start to grow in with trees and become a forested wetland as opposed to a marsh. So we know controlled burns are important and we know that they take place in the Everglades, but how do they decide what time of year to set the fires at and how often they should do so? Typically, natural fire frequency can be estimated by looking at tree rings because fires are kind of stored in the trees memory, if you will, or just in their tree ring, you can see what years fires occurred. Estimating fire frequency isn't so simple with subtropical tree species because the tree rings are harder to read. So instead, they use an estimate of fire fuel. This doesn't mean literal fire fuel. It means the kinds of combustible materials in the environment and how often they build up. Think about the duff that we talked about earlier, the dead tree leaves that build up on the forest floor. That would count as fire fuel. Another method is estimating when the canopy starts to block out the understory and therefore a fire would be useful in resetting the ecosystem to its original state. So the natural fire frequency of the Everglades is estimated to be once in every two to three years to once in every 10 to 15 years. And while that is a pretty broad estimate, I think it suffice to say that fires definitely occurred at least six times per century, and if not, then it occurred more often than that. And then the time of year that fires probably historically took place in was likely April and May, because at this time, lightning strikes more frequently and water tables are the lowest. So then for those of you wondering how exactly they set these uh, controlled fires in the Everglades, they don't just strike a match and throw it into the Everglades. Um, They're actually pretty organized and safe about it, which is good. Uh, They will light the fires from a helicopter. And then they've also got airboats on the ground making sure the fires are contained and that people are okay. And and of course, the reason why they need to make sure that people are okay... (laughs) is because people are actually allowed into the Everglades while these prescribed burns are going on. 
obviously that's how they managed to get Miami CSI filming when one of these was happening. I assumed that it was a real burn because Miami CSI truly does not mess around. They take their scenes seriously and uh, I just, I got that gut feeling, you know? <laughs> anyway, like I mentioned in the beginning, they've also got alerts and maps with the fire areas highlighted so that you don't just wander into a raging fire and find a dead body like they did in this Everglades episode of uh, CSI Miami. So in the end, there are economic benefits to controlled burns. You can either have controlled burns and you'll know when they happen, where they happen, and you allow for people to be safe and take shelter and uh, you have people on the ground making sure the fire is contained, or you can try to suppress fire and then it will happen anyway and you won't know when and you won't know where and people are at risk. So the economic benefit in the sense is that things aren't getting destroyed and the things that are are things that we can repair or repair themselves naturally because that is what their ecosystem is used to. So back to the episode. <laughs> what happens at the end of this episode is highly unrealistic the guy admits to murder by dog i guess his dog like went crazy and shot his friend by like accidentally turning off the safety and pulling the trigger it's the wildest most unrealistic thing that has ever happened but don't you dare complain because csi miami is a great show i hope that you truly learned something new from this episode i know that i certainly did and if you are from this area or you're planning to visit the Everglades anytime soon, I'd love to hear about it. I'm interested in hearing how other people experience this ecosystem. That's all for now, and until next time. Thanks for listening to another episode of Swamped. Swamped is a podcast by me. Jess Turner. Podcast artwork is by Katie Turner, owner of KT Art Studio. Audio is by Kevin McLeod. Check out the Swamped website at defineearth.com swamped and submit questions or ideas to defineearth.com contact dash me. Now get out of my swamp. <laughs>